As we read it as part of your words, we talk about it together. Please help us to understand. And please work through it to comfort our hearts and grow us to be more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. When it comes to suffering, Christians are weird. Now, bear with me for a moment. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, Jesus' grandfather, Lloyd, was diagnosed with cancer of the esophagus back in 2013. It was serious and it was inoperable. Now, he was a, a strong man. He was a farmer. He was someone who flew planes into remote communities to share the gospel. He was fiery and passionate whenever he talked about Jesus and the Bible, never backing down from what he believed was right and true. But over the course of a year, we saw him waste away into nothing from the cancer. When he died, he was only weighed 40 kgs. But the way that he suffered was weird. He kept his joy even to the very end. Every chance he got, he talked to everyone he could about Jesus. He would still get fired up about talking about Jesus and the Bible right to the very end. He looked forward to going to be with Jesus with confidence. He never lost his joy. He never lost his hope. When it comes to suffering, Christians are weird. It's not just Lloyd, you can actually see it throughout history. Christians, they're killed for following Jesus, but they go to the stake singing God's praises. Christians are the one who travel to places no one else will go to talk about Jesus. They're the ones who get sick, but they care for others in their cancer wards. When there's a plague, Christians are the ones who go and care for people that they don't even know. When it comes to suffering, Christians are weird. Why? What is the difference? I want to say to you that the difference is hope. Christians suffer with rock-solid hope. Paul shows us that here in Romans 8. He shows us that as we groan in our present suffering, those who are called to God's purpose, hope and glory, assured that nothing can separate us from his love. We're going to see three reasons here that we can suffer with hope. We have hope in our glorious future. We have hope in God's present help. And we have hope for sure. I want to say no matter what kind of suffering you're facing in the moment, however big or small, let us, let's tune in and let's hear together why you can face that suffering with hope. First, we have hope in our glorious future. Remember last week we saw that if we trust in Christ, then his Holy Spirit lives in us. And when the Holy Spirit shows up in our lives, he changes our lives. He frees us from slavery to sin and death by joining us to Jesus, <coughs> so that there is now no condemnation for us. The Spirit breathes new life into us, changing our minds, guaranteeing our future, transforming us in the present. And he assures us that we are sons, loved by God, full heirs of all that God has promised us. Belonging to Jesus means a future of certain glory as his co-heirs, and the Holy Spirit in us gives us that confidence. But being joined to Jesus also means sharing in suffering. That's what Paul says in verses 16 to 17. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified. Following Jesus will mean suffering before glory. Jesus had to suffer and die before he entered his glory. And we are following him. We are taking up our cross and following him. So that will mean suffering now and glory later. But this doesn't need to discourage us. Instead, we can face this suffering with hope because we have hope in our glorious future. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Our glorious future, when Jesus returns, is so incredible, so amazing, so beyond our imagination, that you can't even compare our present suffering with it. Now, Paul isn't minimising suffering. Paul actually knows how bad it can be. Remember, he suffered a lot. He was persecuted, beaten, stoned, betrayed, shipwrecked, and more. And he's not minimising your suffering. Whatever it is, cancer, grief, rejection, Recurring sickness, abuse, mocking, depression, anxiety, financial stress, rebellious children, sleeplessness, addiction, whatever it is that you suffer with, it truly is awful. Paul is not minimising our suffering. Paul is relativising our suffering. He is putting our suffering in perspective. In Jesus, your future is so incredible, so glorious, so beyond your imagination, it's not even worth comparing. Now just kind of look around the room for a moment. If you think about the people you know in here and who's here, we would have a lot of suffering in this room. Lots of suffering in the past, lots of suffering in the present. All those things we just listened. And imagine somehow that we could just scoop all that suffering up and put it in this ginormous bucket, we need a really big bucket, and put it on one side of the world's biggest set of scales. Paul is saying that if we put our future glory on the other side of those scales, there would be no comparison. There's no competition. It doesn't nearly even out and then go down. It's like me on the seesaw with my six-year-old. No competition. No comparison. The glorious future that God guarantees for his people is beyond comparison with the suffering that we endure there. It's like a drop of water compared to all the water in the universe. It's like an ant compared with the Milky Way galaxy. It's beyond all comparison. Just try to imagine that for a moment. Imagine a future that is so good so glorious that it makes all the suffering that you have ever experienced or ever will experience pale to insignificance. That is the future that God has in store for his people. In fact, this future is so glorious that actually all of creation is waiting for it. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. My uh, youngest daughter, Sophia, her birthday is in May. And this year we had to set a rule that you have to wait until May before you start asking how many days until my birthday. <laughs> By the way, Siri is great for that. She can give an exact answer. But Sophia was so excited she was bouncing with anticipation weeks before. She just couldn't wait. Just like that, the whole of creation is eagerly waiting for our glorious future. Why? Because it means a glorious future for all creation. It means no more futility, no more corruption, no more frustration in a broken world. Remember back in Genesis when God made the world, he made it very good, but when Adam rebelled against God's command by eating from the tree, God cursed the world. All creation was affected by sin. Paul says it was subjected to futility. That's a vanity that Ecclesiastes talks about. Creation no longer functions in the good way that God designed it to. We live in a broken world of sorrow and sickness and disasters and disease and death. This is creation groaning, groaning like in childhood, waiting for the day when Jesus returns to raise his people, to bring the glorious future that he promised, to set all things right, including creation itself. Creation is looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. God promised to make all things new, to undo the curse, to remake our broken world, and creation is waiting in eager anticipation for that day, groaning while it waits. Our glorious future is so great it affects the whole world. And it's not only creation that groans for this future, we groan too, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grow inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. We trust in Jesus, then we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit dwells in us, changing us to be more like Jesus, helping us live for God, changing our desires and loves. But we also struggle with sin. We struggle with suffering and brokenness. Our bodies suffer the effects of the fall. And so we groan. We too wait with eager expectation for Jesus to return and finish the work that he started, to redeem our bodies. We long for the day when we will be set free from sin, free from sickness, free from death. Do you long for that day? But we groan with hope, knowing that Jesus will return. The very nature of this hope is that we don't have it yet, and so we wait with God. That's what Paul says in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This hope isn't wishful thinking like, gee, I hope it gets warmer soon, or I hope I win the lottery. Christian hope isn't like that. Christian hope is rock-solid confidence in what God has said will happen. Rico tries to put it like this. 
Christian hope is a joyful expectation for the future based on true events in the past which changes everything about life. We have a joyful expectation for the future because of what God has done for us in the past. We can't see this glorious future now, but we know that it's coming. God has promised it. And so we wait eagerly with patient, confidence, hope. If you trust in Jesus, you have a glorious future which can't ever be compared with what it's like for you. Cancer, sickness, isolation, loneliness, mental illness, relationship breakdown, struggling with temptation and sin. The future is so good, none of those things will even wait for mention compared to the glory of that future. And that changes everything about our present. It gives us perspective to wait. To wait with patient, eager hope. Yes, we groan now. Suffering sucks. It hurts. But we wait patiently, remembering that the future is better than we can even imagine. There's not only hope for our glorious future that means we can endure suffering with confident hope. It's hope in the present. That's where Paul goes next. We have hope in God's present help. What he says next is a little surprising because you see, it's not just us and creation who groan. God groans too. You see, the Holy Spirit groans with us. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When you have those moments where you are just so overwhelmed, you can't even find the words When suffering feels so intense, all you can do is cry. When you have no idea what to ask God for. In those moments, we can be comforted that God provides for us in our weakness. The Holy Spirit that dwells in us intercedes for us. He prays for us. He groans too. Imagine for a moment if in your moments of greatest suffering, when everything seems hopeless, when all you can do is cry, imagine if you could hear someone praying for you in the next room. Beautiful, heartfelt, sincere prayers. Prayers that keep on going. That's actually true. But it's not just in our worst moments. Always the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groans that are too deep for words. God's not angry about our weakness. He doesn't wish we just pull ourselves together and get on with it. He's a loving Father. He generously and gently provides for our weakness. We know that these prayers are always answered because the Spirit always prays according to God's will. Verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Which brings us to our other present comfort. God doesn't waste any of our suffering. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Now this verse, it doesn't instantly fix all our suffering. It doesn't make you feel better straight away. And I want to say, when someone is really hurting, that is probably not the best time to throw this verse at them. Often we rip this verse out of this whole passage and we treat it like a band-aid. Here you go, you'll feel better. Don't do that. But taken in its context, this verse does give us confident hope in our suffering. Because none of our suffering is wasted. None of it is pointless or in vain. For those who love God, that's those who trust in Jesus, God works all suffering for our good. No suffering is wasted in God's economy. What good could God possibly be working towards from all this? Verse 29. For those who foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many lives. Those that God has chosen to be saved through faith in Jesus, that's what it means that God foreknew and chose us. God is working and transforming them to be more and more like Jesus. To be more like Jesus in their character, in what they love, in their hope, in their faith. To be like Jesus in the way they endure suffering with confident hope. God works our suffering to make us more like Jesus. That's his goal, that's his will. Now I'm sure you've seen this. Uh, one of my best mates had cancer nearly 10 years ago in his early 20s. I was amazed at the way his faith grew, the way he trusted God more, the way he suffered with patience and grace, even when it was really awful. God used his suffering to bear fruit in his life, to make him more like Jesus. Maybe you've seen that in your own life too. God doesn't waste our suffering. He uses it, he uses it to change us to be more like Jesus be conformed to the image of his son. Now, maybe you're someone who's kind of got a lot of unfinished projects left around the house. A lot of things that you started but never finished. Well, God is not like that. Whatever he starts, he always finishes. That's the whole point of verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We could easily spend the whole sermon on this verse. But Paul's whole point is that whatever God starts, he always finishes. Everyone that God has chosen to have faith in Jesus, he justifies through Jesus. And he righteous upon him. And he will glorify them by raising them from the dead and transforming them to be like Jesus once and for all. And this glorification is so sure that Paul can talk about it in the past tense as if it's already happened. God will finish the work that he starts in those who trust in Jesus. And he will work through our suffering to do it. We can suffer with hope because the Spirit helps us and because God is using our suffering for our ultimate good. Which brings us to the final reason. We can suffer with hope because we have hope for sure. That's Paul's last point in this chapter. This hope is not wishing, it is 100% certain, guaranteed, titanium coated hope. How do we know? Well, first, because God is for us in Jesus. 
Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God, the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth, the one who can hold the oceans in the palm of his hand, the one who sustains all things, he is for because of Jesus, he is on our side. He loves and cares for us. We are his children. And there is no greater proof than Jesus. God gave up his own son for us. There is nothing more precious that he could possibly give up. There is no greater gift. If he did this, he will definitely give us everything that we need. Now, you might start to wonder whether that's actually a reason to trust God at all. After, after all, if God sent his own son to suffer and die, how can he, I trust him to care for me? But Jesus wasn't forced. He didn't go unwillingly. They planned this together. Jesus planned to die, and the Father willingly gave him up to save us. God is for us. He desires our good. We can be confident of his care. Because of Jesus, we can be confident that we won't, won't be condemned and cast out of God's loving care. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. God is the one who justifies. We've seen this already in Romans. Although we rebelled against God and deserve his judgment, Jesus lived the righteous life on our behalf and died to pay the penalty for our sins. Because of Jesus, God counts us as righteous. We are justified, righteous of God. And more than that, Jesus is speaking, interceding on our behalf. And if God is for us, Jesus is interceding for us. If he has justified us, then no one can condemn us. We don't need to fear being cast out. Just imagine with me for a moment. Imagine a scene in heaven. God the judge is there and Satan the accuser. And he says to God, have you seen that Josh Rowe? He's trapped. He's selfish. He's lied. He said harsh and angry words. He's hated people. Need I go on? He is a rebel against you and he deserves your judgment. And God says, yes, I know all that. It's true. But I am for him. I gave my own son for him. But he's a sinner. I charged him with sin. No. I have justified him through the sacrifice of my son. He deserves your condemnation. My son died for me. He has been raised for me. There is therefore now no condemnation for me. More, my son is right here now, interceding on Joshua's behalf. He is mine. I died for him. He is being made right. If you trust in Jesus, this is true for you. Nothing 
can separate the two That's where Paul finishes. As Christians living in a broken world, we will, we will suffer. We'll face all sorts of things. Paul lists some of them in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we have been killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul even quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, to show that throughout history, God's people have always faced terrible suffering. Can this suffering separate us from God's love? Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who Suffering can't It cannot separate us from God's love. Even our suffering is not wasted, but it's used to transform us to more like Jesus. The very things that would tear us down actually serve to build us up in Christ. If even our suffering is used for our good, then we really are more than conquerors. We might be tempted to think that when we suffer, it means that God must be unhappy with us. But that's not true at all. No form of suffering or trouble or distress can cut us off from God's love for us in Jesus. That's where Paul ends in verse 38 and 39. Listen to these words closely. Let them remind you of the confident hope you can have in Jesus. Verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation. Think not cancer, not grief, nor rejection, nor isolation, nor loneliness, nor depression, nor anxiety. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean suffering won't be hard. It will be. We grow. But no matter what you face, you, you can face it with confidence and hope in Jesus. Nothing can separate you from God's love. When it comes to suffering, Christians are weird. Weird because we can endure suffering with confident hope because of Jesus. And so this week, as you endure whatever life throws at you, Remember the hope of the glorious future we have in Jesus. The present can't even be compared. Remember the hope of God's present help interceding for us through His Spirit, using all our suffering for our good and to make us more like Jesus. And remember that we have hope for sure, because God is for us, and nothing can separate us from His love in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for the sure and certain hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you that even when we suffer, even when we face sickness and trouble, temptation, even as we groan, longing for our future, we can be confident because the glorious future that you have for us is beyond comparison with our present suffering. We can have hope because your spirit is working to intercede for us with groans that words can't express. That you're working through all our suffering to make us more like Jesus. 
and ultimately that nothing can separate us from your love. Father, we long for the glorious future that you have for us. We pray, come Lord Jesus, come. And we ask that as we wait eagerly, that you would help us hold fast that sure hope we have in Jesus. In his name. Amen.